We're going to take a look at the feasts of Passover and unleavened bread. It happened in May, 15 years ago. Leonardo Diaz was hiking with friends in the Colombian Andes when a blizzard struck and he was separated from the rest of the group. He hunkered down to wait, but it soon began to run out of supplies, as you can imagine, in that bitter, harsh environment. He had his cell phone in his pack. But now remember, this was 15 years ago, and he was using prepaid minutes at that point in time, and all of his prepaid minutes had already expired. His phone was not usable to him. Diaz realized that he wasn't going to make it, began to prepare for the inevitable. And then suddenly, his phone rang. It was Bell South calling to remind him he'd run out of minutes, and would he like to buy some more? Yes. And seven hours later, he was rescued. Sometimes, rescue comes from the most unlikely source. After all, who would think of a life-saving rescue coming from a lamb? Today, we turn our attention to Passover and unleavened bread. And this is the way Leviticus introduces the two to us. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 5, the Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day, that'd be the next day of that month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days, you must eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present an offering made to the Lord by fire. And on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. Now, if you want to Check out some more information and details on, on Passover. What, afterwards, read Exodus 11 and 12. But I'm going to tell you the events that happen in those stories. Passover is the longest continuously celebrated special day in history, without, without doubt. The first Passover, you see, was observed about 3,500 years ago, and it is still the most frequently celebrated holiday among Jewish families today. Now, in my mind, the divine images of God's eternal story woven through the images of Passover make it impossible for us to miss seeing Jesus in this incredible event. But to understand the significance of that day, to be able to see these pictures, we must journey back in time to when God sent Moses to rescue the Israelites out of slavery during their time in the land of Egypt. Now, this rescue story does not take place in a matter of hours like Leonardo's in the Andes. But it unfolds over a period of about nine months. I think it could have been over in a matter of hours had it not been for the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Had I been Pharaoh, when Moses threw his staff on the ground and it became a live king cobra, the Hebrews would have been out of there in a matter of minutes, I'm telling you. But it was not impressive to Pharaoh. Nothing was impressive to Pharaoh. And so, as a result, God began a crash course on the divine power through a series of plagues that were, that were intended to do two things. The first was they, they were intended to crush the gods of Egypt. And second, they were to remind the Israelites who had been indoctrinated with 400 years of Egyptian idolatry who the Lord God really was. When God in the first plague, 
turned the Nile into blood. He was attacking their worship of Kanum, the god of the river, as well as Osiris, one of the special gods of the Egyptians, the god of the underworld. You see, the, the Egyptians believed that the Nile River was the main bloodstream of Osiris. And so when God turned it into blood, it was quite a surprise. Likewise, the plague of frogs that followed was an attack on Hecht, the frog-headed goddess of resurrection. The spiritual battle continued with the Egyptian gods crumbling all around them. Lice stopped the Egyptian sacrifices because of cleanliness issues. And the swarms of flies were a sign that Beelzebub, prince of the air, was nothing. Livestock suffered disease for punishment against Apis, the sacred bull, which also became the model for the golden calf once out in the wilderness. The plague of boils challenged Imhotep, the god of medical cures. Hailstones showed the weakness of Nut, the sky goddess. Locusts opposed Napri, the grain god. Darkness was an attack against Ray, the sun god. And the death of the firstborn, that was an attack against all of the gods of Egypt. And is in this tenth plague, the death of the firstborn male, that grabs our attention this morning. From Pharaoh on down, no Egyptian household escaped tragedy. Even the firstborn of the cattle and livestock, which likely had been repurchased from surrounding countries after the livestock had died in plague number five, the firstborn of that cattle also died. Now, I'm a firstborn. I don't know how many. If, if you're a firstborn male in your family, raise your hand for just a second. Man, look around the room. Just, just think. Just think, on that night, had we been Egyptians, all of us would have perished. And so it is in the events of this 10th and final plague that are captured in the celebration of Passover where we see Jesus so clearly portrayed long before he ever arrived in this world. Now, it starts with God giving his people ample time to prepare for the Passover. Uh, and, and preparation is not only a part of God's story, it's a part of our story as well. Uh, preparation is a big deal in, in life. We get nine months to prepare for the birth of a child. We get 18 years to prepare that child for life on his or her own. We get time in school and college to prepare for a career. And we get a lifetime in this world to prepare us for eternity. So how's that journey coming along in your life? How's your preparation going for the world to come? Choose wisely every day how you will prepare for the challenges of tomorrow because preparation is part of the story. Well, the preparation began on the 10th day of the month of Nisan. The Hebrews were to choose a year-old male lamb without spot or blemish and keep that with them until the 14th day of the month. Now, why an innocent lamb? Ah, this is another attack on an Egyptian god. As a matter of fact, it was the god Amun. He was the principal god of Egypt, the head of all other Egyptian gods, and his sign, his animal, was the ram, a male sheep. And so choosing a male lamb from the flock was an ultimate attack on the principal god of the Egyptians. Now, each of the four days that that lamb was in captivity from the 10th to the 14th represented a day or a century of captivity in Egypt, 400 years. But there's something else here. You keep a lamb with you for four days. And suddenly that lamb is no longer just livestock. If that lamb is staying with you, that lamb sort of becomes, well, more like a pet than a part of livestock. 
And so when it comes time for the sacrifice of the lamb, it becomes a more painful moment for the, for the family to realize it is the price that is paid for our sin. The gravity of the moment comes home when that lamb has been kept with you for those four days. So on the 14th day, the lamb was brought to the doorstep of the house and killed. The blood was caught in a basin at the foot of the door. And then taking a hyssop branch dipped in the blood, the header above the door was marked, and the doorposts were marked on the side. And if you connect the dots, what do you get? You get a cross. The picture's not over yet. No bones were to be broken, and the lamb was to be roasted, not boiled. To make sure that it cooked evenly, there's historical evidence to suggest that the lamb was roasted upright on a pomegranate pole with a crossbar through the shoulders. Once again, a cross. Now keep in mind, at that time in history, there was no such thing as a cross that was used for punishment or execution. Some even suggest in history that the entrails of the lamb were wrapped around the lamb's head so that everything cooked evenly, but it gave it the look of a crown, maybe even the crown of thorns around the head of the lamb. And of course, the pomegranate was a symbol both of royalty and of priesthood. The lamb was to be eaten that night. Nothing was to be left over. And along with the lamb, they were to eat flatbread, no yeast. This was to remind them the haste with which they would leave Egypt. They were also to eat bitter herbs dipped in salt water to remind them of their tears and the bitterness of their suffering during their slavery. And they were to eat this meal in haste with their cloaks tucked into their belts, their sandals on their feet, and their staffs in their hands. This was no leisurely joyous meal, folks. This was a somber occasion because these who celebrated the original Passover could hear the sounds of sorrow and mourning coming from the Egyptian households as they mourned the death of the loved one. The night of Passover then kicked off a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. Every bit of yeast in the house was removed. As a matter of fact, you went through, you swept the entire house so that not even a crumb was left. And you think, well, that sounds a little odd. Why did they do that? Well, you know, first of all, for us, you got to realize yeast bread is just, oh, there is nothing that smells as appetizing and aromatic as homemade yeast bread. My grandmother could make the best homemade rolls. They would melt in your mouth. So who would want flat bread? Who would want bread without yeast? Well, in the Bible, you got to understand, yeast is symbolic of sin. Just as it takes only a dab of yeast to make the whole loaf expand, so it only takes a little bit of sin to destroy an entire life. And if we want an ongoing relationship with the Lord once we've been rescued, then we need to get rid of the sin that is in our lives. Do, do you see the picture? God rescued and redeemed his people that night in Egypt. The feast of unleavened bread then was their pledge to follow him and put that slavery behind them. So what are we doing? To sweep our lives clean so that not even a hint of that sin or temptation remains. When God paid so dear a price for our lives, how can we continue to do what is offensive? If Jesus paid for our sin with his sacrifice... How can we be flippant about that? What if your child died while saving another person, but the rescued individual act flippant about your loss? How would that make you feel? Every time we sin, 
It is a flippant, casual response to the sacrifice of God. So in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they swept everything clean to say, Lord, we want this relationship with you. Okay, let's move to the life of Christ. God leaves no doubt as to the role of Jesus and what he is going to play. Suddenly, all the tiny glimpses, like like scattered, disconnected pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, all begin to come together at this moment in the life of Christ. And it begins at the very start of his earthly journey. I mean, the the whole event plays out beginning with his birth. Somewhere on the hillsides around Bethlehem, an angel appears to random shepherds with this news, Luke chapter 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, we assume these are ordinary shepherds, but they are not ordinary shepherds. You see, by the time of Christ, when so many people came into the city of Jerusalem for the celebration of Passover. It was pretty hard to bring a lamb all the way with you from wherever home was and keep that lamb unspotted and unblemished. And so you would buy your lamb in the city of Jerusalem. They were for sale near the temple. But the lambs that were raised for the Passover to be bought by the people, the pilgrims who would come into Jerusalem, were raised just down the road in Bethlehem. These shepherds on the hillsides of Bethlehem were raising lambs for sacrifice. So why did the angel, have you ever noticed this in in, in the Christmas story? Why did the angel say, this will be a sign to you? This this meant more than you'll recognize him because he's wrapped in, everybody wrapped their their, their babies in, in cloth. This should be a sign to you. What's the sign? Scholar Michael Norton writes that the male lambs of Bethlehem were born And as they were born, they were picked up, quickly wrapped in strips of cloth made from the priest's old garments and placed in a manger so that they would not be trampled or bruised by the rest of the flock surrounding them. These lambs were protected by the Bethlehem shepherds for a divine appointment in Jerusalem. So when the angel said to these shepherds, now watch for this sign. You will find the babe wrapped in strips of cloth, swaddling clothes, as the King James puts it, and lying in a manger. This would not have been lost on those shepherds. Their ears would have perked up. Their eyelids and eyebrows would have raised. They would have said, whoa, we know what this sign is. Let us go and see this child who has been born as a Savior. Some 30 years later, Jesus reaches the banks of the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And John the Baptist, seeing him on the banks, points to him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said such things as, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now fast forward to Jerusalem. It is the last Passover that Jesus will observe. It is the week before his death. 
the city would have swelled to three times its normal population. It would have had 75 to 100,000 people in it on this day. Now, Jesus didn't stay in town. There was no room for him there. He'd faced that 33 years earlier at his birth. And so he stayed with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany, his, his dear friends. John writes and tells us in John chapter 12, verse 1, that Jesus arrived in Bethany six days before the Passover. Now, folks, if the Passover was celebrated on the 14th day of the month, and then he arrived on the ninth day then that means day number 10, the next day, John says, was the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to the shouts of the people, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Palm Sunday, what we're celebrating today. If that was day 10, remember it was day 10 when they chose the lamb that would be the Passover meal. Now remember, the Jewish day began at sundown, roughly 6 p.m. in the evening. So the Passover meal would have been Thursday evening, but that would have been the first part of day 14. So Jesus gathered with his disciples to celebrate the Passover, but make no mistake about it, the next morning, the next morning at 9 o'clock when he was crucified, it was the daytime portion of Passover. He comes into the shouts of the people on the 10th, he dies on the day of the Jewish calendar, on the 14th. Wearing his crown of thorns and bearing his cross, he made his way to the place of crucifixion, and there at nine o'clock, he was nailed to the cross. For six long and grueling hours, he hung there, spoke only seven times. There's that number seven again. And at three o'clock, with a loud shout, he proclaimed one word in the Greek, which in our language we translate as three, it is finished. Meaning that everything that could be done to save the lost has now been done. And in haste, before the day of preparation, they came around to make sure that the thieves and Jesus had died. They broke the legs of the thieves so that they would suffocate on the cross. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead and so there were no broken bones. Remember the Passover lamb, no broken bones. And they took him down off the cross. They buried him in the borrowed tomb so that that would take place before six o'clock and the day of the Sabbath had, had begun and again, the Passover lamb, nothing was to be left for the next day. But here's the most striking picture to me of all. The hours of sacrifice at the temple started at 9 o'clock in the morning and continued to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The very same hours that Jesus was crucified and hung on the cross. So from 9 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon, these lambs were being sacrificed at the temple within sight of where Calvary was. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, when all of the sacrifices were done, the priests would take basins of water and they would wash down the bloody floors of the temple. And I understand that in the foundation of the temple, there are shallow trenches that would carry away this water and this blood. And it was in a drainage system and the ports of the drain system were on the side of the hill where the temple stood. And from the cross, you would have been able to look across the valley and see those ports. And at just moments after three, water and blood would have been flowing out of the side of the temple grounds just as a Roman soldier picked up a spear, thrust it into the side of Jesus, and blood and water pour out. The message could not be more profound. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
I was riveted when I first heard this story 38 years ago, and I am impacted still every time I reread it. Willie Toomer lived with his family in Europe during World War II. And he described how the Nazi SS troops would often give bizarre orders to destroy homes and villages completely. And when they had gone through and destroyed a town, they would take the blood of their last victim, they would spray it on the door so that any other SS troops coming through town would know that that place had already been attacked. When word came that soldiers were entering Willie's town, the army was surrounding the town. There was no place to run. There was no place to hide. Willie determined that the only hope he had lay in the pet lamb that they had, he had given his children uh, earlier in the year. And so they took the lamb and they killed it in the cellar, drained the blood of the lamb into a bowl, took his family upstairs. He laid them down in their various rooms, poured blood on them, smeared blood on their clothes. With the remaining blood, he poured it on himself, laid down in the front room, washed the basin, put it back up in the cabinet. And as he could hear the gunshots going off down the street, it dawned on him he had not saved any of the blood in the basin to mark the door. So he ran back down into the cellar. Among the entrails of the lamb, he grabbed the heart, took it outside quickly, threw it with all of his might up against the door. It splayed and it splattered and sprayed, ran back inside, laid down on the floor, and then he could hear the stormtroopers coming up the walk. The door opened. He heard the cock of the gun. And then he heard the officer. Let's move on. This home has already been attacked. Did you not see the blood on the door? The door closed. He laid breathless tears in his eyes. He heard the guns going off in his neighbor's home next door. And he said it was the first time in his life that the scriptures had come alive because he thought, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, saved by the blood of the Lamb.